This is the Cubs Related Podcast presented by CubsInsider.com. My name is Brendan. Not joined with me is Corey. You're hearing me do the intro, which means I am going solo. So Corey filled in for me about, uh, what was it now, five, six weeks ago. I'm filling in for Corey, and truthfully, it's my fault. I'm traveling, and I'm recording late right now. It is almost 2 a.m. Chicago time. I don't want to subject Corey to recording this late and talking about this team, which is making all of us extremely sad. It's making me extremely sad. But that being said, we do have a lot to cover this episode, and it's going to be a little bit different than what we typically do. So I'm not going to recap these games against the Philadelphia Phillies. I don't think anyone really cares to hear what happened. What I am going to do this entire episode, I'm going to break down what I think is the most noteworthy trends in looking ahead at this trade deadline, looking ahead at Craig Kimbrell, for example, what the Cubs might do in the immediate future with some of these potential trade candidates, if they might go the long distance and trade some of these guys for you know younger guys as they did with you darvish so that's going to be kind of the layout of the episode i am going to talk about for example patrick wisdom and some of his adjustments i am going to touch on arietta alec mills i'm going to touch on some of the draft stuff but i will say as a preface like i haven't followed the draft as closely as some of the other prospect guys and i will refer to those guys who have such as you know Jimmy and Greg Huss of the Growing uh, Cubs podcast and uh, a lot of the guys at Cubs Insider and in Bleacher Nation, including Todd and Brian, those guys are really following the draft closely. But I will follow and give some of my insights of what you might expect from this draft and more so kind of like my, you know, kind of naive opinions on the draft at this point. That's going to be the the layout of this episode. Um, you know, Corey does a great job going solo. I'm going to dive uh, maybe a little bit more into some of the nuances of some of these trends that we're seeing. So again, I'm not going to recap the series. The Cubs have destroyed all of our lives, destroyed my life with this losing streak. They lost three out of four against the Phillies. Uh, it, look, they're they're trending in a direction that screams um, reload maybe not rebuild but but reload and given what we've seen from their recent rumors such as those from Ken Rosenthal the Cubs might be in position to trade Craig Kimbrell and some other pieces for some some interesting prospect packages or immediate value packages but that being said I want to give just a really clear outline of what I'm going to do this episode so I'm going to start with Arietta. I'm going to talk about Trevor Williams after Arietta. Then I'm going to talk about Patrick Wisdom. I'm going to talk about Craig Kimbrell and his trade value. I'm going to talk about Alec Mills' recent success. I'm going to talk about some potential returns in hypothetical trades. And if you've listened to this episode or this podcast rather for you know four or five plus years, the caveat that we always give is that we Corey and I do not like to live in hypotheticals. And that's because there are so many possibilities that exist in this trade market. And now in these days, in a post-COVID baseball era, where the baseballs have changed, um, the sticky 
substance tracking has changed. It's extremely difficult to talk in hypotheticals, and it's more so worth talking about the Cubs situation and what they might do rather than pinpointing like certain players. But I mean, I will bring up certain players that might make sense in terms of like an immediate return, but it is a caveat, and I do want to bring it up before we get into this. And I did tweet out before I started recording this episode, hey, like, what do you guys want to hear? And one of their one of the responses from friend of the pod, Ryan Tomera, was, can you talk about how I can be happy, Ryan? If I could tell you how to be happy, I would be happy myself at this point. But I did hear a lot about, um, like, for example, from David West, hey, like, what do you want to see from trade candidates, from Greg Huss, again, of the Growing Cups pod, uh, Growing Cups podcast, like, what do you want to see in the draft? Um, so from other longtime listeners, so I do want to give a shout out because they've been listening to us for so long. Longtime listener at D West wanted to hear about trade talk rumors maybe some MLB-ready players that the Cubs could be targeting. Other guys who are good followers, such as at Cross Oliver, wanted to hear about, hey, what are the potential trade values for Jock Peterson and Zach Davies and even Jake Marisnik at, at KTroy56. Kyle Troy wanted to hear about Nico Horner's future, whether that lies to second base or maybe he'll play some shortstop here in the future given Javi Baez's uh, uncertainty. And then, uh, this is kind of a funny one, uh, Danny Newman wanted to hear if it feels good to wake up in the morning not worrying about Eric Sogard in the lineup for the meantime. Uh, I'm going to get this out of the way. Danny, it feels good. It feels great. Um, Eric Sogard was placed on the 10-day IL. Whether that means he'll be on the Cubs for the long-term future, I don't know. But for now, I'm going to enjoy him not playing for the Chicago Cubs. It was a shame that Eric Sogard was on this roster for so long and his sub-230 expected weighted on base average, his negative 0.2 war, and in some cases, in rare lineups, he batted as high as fifth in the order. And he was playing third base in this series against the Phillies. I mean, looking like a middle school infielder out there. And who am I to talk behind this mic, but, uh, you know, if you've watched the Cubs for so many years now, especially since 2015, you've been accustomed to top-tier defense at third base and second base and shortstop, and what you've seen from Eric Sogard is anything but that. This is a 35-year-old player who's received a huge chunk of playing time, in part due to injuries, but also because they signed him. They wanted Eric Sogard to be part of this team, and he was the depth that Jed Hoyer sought before the season. Um, whether David Ross should have played him or not is a different conversation, but he's on their roster. And that's unfortunately what we had to watch for, for so many months. So that is the outline. Let's start with Jake Arrieta. All right. So Jake, not good. Got blown up again against the Phillies, leaving sinkers over the middle of the plate and getting discussions from Twitter and from fans and even from the media asking David Ross whether Jake Arrieta should stay in the rotation. This is a difficult conversation for, for me, and I think it's maybe an obvious conversation for a lot of fans, given that he's been so brutal recently. But we have to remember, or rather I, not you, I have to remember that at this point in the year, 
we are looking at 2022 and beyond. So what does that mean for Jake? Well, Jake is more than likely not going to be part of this future, right? That being said, he does have value for 2022 and beyond. And right now, his value is, for better or for worse, in eating innings. And I get that his ERA is 6.3, his FIP is 5.84, his walk per nine is 4.4 batters per nine innings, his home run per nine is an insane two plus home runs per fly ball. That can't work in Major League Baseball. But here's the thing with Jake. One, we need innings. And we need innings for 2022 and beyond as we talk about Keegan Thompson and Justin Steele and Adbert Alzali. They can't go every fifth day at this point. And the argument can be had that, well, that's fine. Don't throw them every fifth day. Keep Justin Steele in that two-inning role out of the bullpen. And keep Keegan Thompson kind of in that role and swing start him in three, four, or five-inning stints. That makes sense, and I get it. But it's more flexible for Ross to be able to use Justin Steele and Keegan Thompson in those roles if he can rely on Jake Arrieta throwing four, five, maybe six innings at best. And so there is value to Jake Arrieta being good this year. I know it's probably not going to be picked up, and it's a mutual option, but Arietta does have a mutual option with the Cubs for 2022. And there is a quote, just a paraphrase by Jake, that he believes his stuff is still there. Some fans don't believe that. Some fans do believe that. I'm in the camp that I do believe Jake still has some stuff that will play. And the preface here is that my assumption with that is that Jake can change his sequencing and the location in which he throws to optimize his current stuff. Before the Cubs signed Arietta, I was excited by his signing because I thought that Jake would get back to his mechanics before 2018. Those mechanics that we saw in 2015, 2016, and a good part of 2017 when he was more crossfire. Since 2018, when he went to the Phillies, and even this year, he's been unable to replicate that crossfire action. And we know that because of two reasons. The first reason is that the data from StackCast, this horizontal release point, has gradually trended more so towards the center of the rubber. We can take from, you've seen those Doppler radars from StackCast, we can track his horizontal release point. And since 2017, it's gotten more center, center, center. And that's due to, again, two reasons. The first is that he's not setting up close at third base. And also, he just may not be throwing and releasing this pitch towards third base, angling into home plate as he used to be. And visually looking at this, the latter seems to be the case. And when we hear quotes and we hear Boog and JD and June talking about Jake not being able to throw crossfire, um, that sounds like that's a a major issue. That that might have been that might have been a a gamble 
a misfire by Jed Hoyer and the coaching staff assuming that they can get a mid-30-year-old Jake Arrieta to be crossfire as he once was five, six years ago. He can't do that. That being said, despite not being able to throw crossfire, the way Jake is throwing, um, it's obviously it's not working out. And I don't want to go on this podcast and say, hey, you know, it's not working out because 100% he's not throwing sinkers up in the zone. If you've listened to this podcast for many months now, I've, I've talked about how the Cubs have nudged their pitchers, such as Adbert Alzali and Alec Mills and Kyle Hendricks, and dating back to even last year, Jose Quintana. They've nudged their guys to throw sinkers up in the zone. And when you watch Adbert pitch, even even in today's contest or yesterday's contest, in which the Cubs lost eight nothing, you see the tunnels that Alzali is working. You see him throw those sinkers and sliders in the same tunnel, and that sinker goes tailing away inside of righties as that slider goes the complete opposite direction towards that left-hander's batter's box, and that's the tunnel he works off of, and he's had success because of that. Jake is different. Jake has that cutter. He has that sinker. But he's been very insistent and trying with intent to hammer that low and outside portion of the plate. And there's quotes from spring training and Jake saying that when he is right, when Arietta is right, he's hammering that low and outside portion of the plate. And as hot as he said back in February, after he is able to do that, then he can elevate. Then you can use that fastball up in the zone. Unfortunately, what hasn't happened is Jake locating those low and outside sinkers and locating pitches down in a way and backdooring right-handed batters with that sinker. His command has been off for the majority of the year, and even during that stretch in April when he was having success against the Pirates, he still wasn't really locating as well. And that's anecdotal. We don't have data with that, but watching those games kind of got away with some leaky pitches. So here's where I'm at with Jake. This season is, is it's basically, it's basically over, right? Um, you know, we're, <laughs> we lost 11 games in a row. It's July 9th. We have the trade deadline in three weeks. You're almost 10 games back in the division. This, this, this season's over, right? So you can look at Jake as a mechanism to protect Alzali and Keegan Thompson and Justin Steele. But you can also maybe look at him as an option, as crazy as it sounds, for 2022. And I give that I give that option like a 2% chance of happening. I'm not saying that it should be seriously entertained. But if you need innings to be eaten in order to protect you in order to protect your younger guys, then you might as well just try to optimize some of Jake's sequencing. And I do think at this point, given some of the predictive models, and this is not like, you know, when I say like Jake throwing sinkers up in the zone might be beneficial. Yeah, that's my opinion, but it's kind it's kind of like not my opinion. When you take all of this stack ass data, and this is something that uh, that I have I have done, you can throw that data into an algorithm. A machine learning algorithm and what pops out of that algorithm is predictive measures of whiffs and what comes out of that predictive measure is that sinker location for jake 
is one of the greatest predictors of whiffs. And if we look at his sinkers that were thrown unintentionally up in the zone, he has about a three times greater probability of getting a whiff on sinkers up in the zone versus when he throws sinkers low in the zone. And there's a slight window low and away in which his uh, whiff probability is similar to, for example, up and away or up and in, but that margin of error is so slim. And if you've watched Jake this year, especially within the last month, when he barely misses, he's getting hammered, right? If he barely misses up in the zone, he's not going to get hammered. There's a legit possibility. This is a possibility, not a reality. It's a legit possibility that he has more margin for error and that he's able to get more whiffs. And in doing so, able to limit some of the BS contact and limit some of the fly balls and go deeper into games and use that slider cutter variation to his advantage. And I think overall, the one trait Jake has shown that's been positive this year is his curveball. His curveball spin rate is in his 75th percentile of Major League Baseball. So his stuff, at least from his curveball, it, it's there. He's in his mid-30s. I know it's crazy to say that, hey, Jake Arrieta's stuff is still there, but his curveball is, guys. His curveball spin rate is better than three-quarters of Major League Baseball. So when I watch him pitch, I'm like begging at this point to change something. And I think given some of the machine learning algorithms that have been implemented, one logical change is to throw sinkers up in the zone especially given that Hendricks has has had success because of it, and Adbar Alzali has had success because of it, and Alec Mills has had success. Even Braylon Marquez, when he was on the team last year, and using that South Bend site, he implemented a new sinker. The up and in sinker is something Tommy Adebi and Craig Breslow appear to be trying to, to give their, their pitchers. And they've had success because of it. I don't know where to go with Jake, right? If the Cubs were competing, I would say, let's give someone else a chance. But the Cubs are not competing right now. So my logic and future thinking is on next season and beyond. And because of that, I think there's a lot of credence to the fact that we need Jake to eat innings this year. And given that we've seen Justin Steele being stretched out in his rehab start in two-plus innings, uh, we're going to see him in a multi-inning role. And we're probably going to see Keegan Thompson in a multi-inning role beyond just that coming from the bullpen. We might see him start this year. So Jake may not be that everyday fifth starter, but him being on the team and valuable is valuable for the future, both for the other guys and for Jake himself. Okay, so let's transition over to Patrick Wisdom. So Wisdom was tearing up June, right? And the issue with Wisdom, even when he was on his hot stretch, was that contact rate. Even when he was blasting home runs, the deep center, the left field, working deep at bats, there was a concern that his overall whiff rate was suggesting that in the long term, he was not capable of keeping this style of, produ- of, of production. And that's 
what we've seen so far in the early stages of late July and early June. So even during Patrick Wisdom's strong stretch, he was whiffing at a 40% rate. Now, in a qualified sample, if you take the qualified plate appearance sample in Major League Baseball, that type of rate that Wisdom was displaying, the worst in Major League Baseball. But during that stretch, Wisdom was displaying an ability to hit every pitch. There was a, a moment in time where he had positive run value from a weighted run value number against fastballs and cutters and sinkers and sliders and curveballs and changeups. He was basically hitting most pitches that were thrown to him. And that was impressive. And that signaled to me that despite the issues with his contact rate, if he's able to have underlying success against a, a variety of pitches, then maybe that suggests that he's also capable of adjusting. So far in July, he has not walked one time. It's okay. It's an adjustment phase. He has struck out in half of his plate appearances, and his weighted on base average is below 200. So this is what we call an adjustment phase for Patrick Wisdom. What are pitchers doing differently to Patrick Wisdom? Well, it's a small sample size, so it's hard to tell if the differences are due to scouting or just the underlying repertoire of the pitcher's wisdom is facing. But what we've seen so far is a decent drop in fastballs from uh, to Wisdom. And in July, he was seeing a fastball in 51% of pitches seen. So far in July, he's seen a fastball only 43% of the time. Now the question is, are those sliders being thrown, change-ups, curveballs? Again, we're only in a week and a half in July. This is too small of a sample to say definitively that Wisdom is intentionally facing more secondary pitches. But in the short going here, he's faced more change-ups by about twofold, and he's faced about an equal amount of sliders and cutters. So the difference here in the first week and a half has been against change-ups. And as he had positive run value against change-ups for the majority of June, as was the case for all the other pitches in July here, and even dating back to the last week of June, he's got basically negative run value against every secondary pitch. So this is an adjustment phase for Wisdom. Can he get out of it? I hope he does. Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to say. Um, the projections by Zips, given his debut success with the Cubs, is still an estimated 320 weighted on base average for the rest of the season, which is which is pretty good, man. Like that's actually a WRC plus of 102. And the reason that Zips is giving wisdom that high, you know, relatively high, of a run projection is because they think he can walk at an 8% rate and still slug with an ISO above 200 despite the projection of a 33% walk rate and a batting average of 231. So if he can slug with an ISO over 200 and walk around 8% of the time off the bench and play positive defense, that's like an average player, slightly above average. And that's not within the Cubs' projections going into 2021. And that's one reason why earlier in June, Corey and I were so excited because you were getting positive 
variance, as, as we talked about, from guys you did not expect to produce. You were getting, at one point, within 35 plate appearances, half a win by Alcantara. In just under 80 plate appearances, you're getting one war from Wisdom. So just in like a brief period of time, you're getting uh, a huge amount of value from two guys that you did not expect to be on your major league roster this soon, which makes the recent stretch so difficult to swallow because it's like, oh, you got through that tough stretch. You were able to survive against the Padres and win five out of six. You swept the Cardinals. You swept the Dodgers earlier on in the year. You were surviving that West Coast trip. You were in the first place. You were 10 games above 500. You just got to get healthy and survive. And fortunately, they went on that uh, 11 game losing streak. It 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 true it truly sucks. Like it actually makes me um, you know physically sick to to think about. Uh, so um, man, I can't believe they did that. Seriously, I, I I really can't believe they they if they avoided this negative extreme, this would be an entirely different tone. Um, man, it just it 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 really it really sucks. Okay. So that's Wisdom's deal, right? Still a small sample. We really don't know if the adjustments made by the league are due to pitching, scouting report changes, or due to just the underlying competition that Wisdom is facing. So we'll see what happens, but the reality is he's facing about seven percentage points fewer fastballs in the short going here in the first two weeks. Moving on to Craig Kimbrell. Okay, Kimbrell is very likely to be the top trade candidate on the market. And this is not my opinion. This is not Corey's opinion, even though we share this type of feel. This is what Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic put out. And this is a, a topic that you know a lot of different Cubs blogs have followed. Kimbrell has insane value, guys. I don't want to read his numbers, but we're talking about FIPS and ERAs around one, striker race in double digits, walk rates in tiers that are top and he's an elite level closer. In years past, you know what the price tag was, right? You know the Cubs gave up Gliber Torres for a role this Chapman in 2016 when they were trying to win the World Series. And you can't help but wonder what the price tag will be for a similar team in a World Series contending position in 2021. That includes the San Diego Padres, but also includes teams like the Boston Red Sox and the Houston Astros and the Oakland Athletics. And right now, as it stands, Kimbrell is the best reliever on the market, if not the best candidate on the market. So the question has to be asked, what type of value can the Cubs get in return? And this was a question that, uh, again, D West at D West posed. Do the Cubs want to get immediate value back or do they want to get long-term value back? It's difficult to project, right? You can look at the Astros, you can look at the Red Sox, you can look at the A's, you can go to their top prospect list. I'm not going to read off all these names, right? There's like a dozen plus names. It's going to waste my time to talk about each one of these players, but we can talk about the generalities of what might be returned. It is hard to project what those generalities are because the Darvish trade complicated so many things because the Darvish trade was made presumably under a mandate we will never know but presumably under a mandate the Cubs had to cut budget because they did not anticipate reliably they could get gate 
revenue through ticket sales in a post-COVID era. This was an extremely conservative measure, presumably again by ownership, that led to Jed Hoyer trading away Hugh Darvish, a Cy Young candidate. Should have won the Cy Young last year. And we got back teenagers. We got back you know, a group of teenagers who are very talented and, and having some success early on here in Arizona in those um, instructional leagues. But they were teenagers, and we got back Zach Davies as well. We didn't get back any guys that were in AA or AAA or immediately giving back value. Zach Davies is, you know, of course, you know, upper 20s, 28. He was an immediate return, but he's going to be a free agent after this year. The Cubs did not acquire any long-term projectable talent from the U Darvish and Victor Caratini deal. So it complicates things. Do we interpret that in the context that that deal was made under a budget-restricted environment? Or, on the other end, do we interpret that deal being made by Jed Hoyer with the intent that he wants to develop and accumulate as much young talent as possible, regardless if he wants to compete in 2022? Maybe the logic there is to compete for... 2022 in a different way, but also keep your eyes in the future to 2023 and 2024 and 2025 and just grow the system. And even if you do want to compete for 2022 and 2023, use the pieces that were acquired. I don't want to call them pieces. Use the players that were acquired by you, Darvish and Victor Caratini to trade for immediate value. That's still a huge inherent risk given they're teenagers, but maybe that was part of the equation, even though I might not agree with it. I'm an idiot. I'm not a front office executive. I don't have all the data. This is a fan's point of view looking in, but maybe that was some of the logic by Jed Hoyer. So what did the Cubs do? Did they go out and do they try to find immediate value or did they go out and try to stock the farm system with teenagers with quantity of prospects rather than a slim if not one trade candidate that can provide immediate value what do i want i i I want that immediate value i think given the cubs current budget situation if we calculate with a somewhat lack of confidence budget for 2022 their expected luxury tax payroll is around 120 to 130 million. That leaves them with a luxury tax payroll of around 80 to 90 million dollars. That is an insane amount of money to spend. That means they could spend it on Javi Baez if they want to, Anthony Rizzo if they want to, Chris Bryant if they want to. And if we just sum up the the values for Rizzo and Baez and KB, that might be like $60 million. So if you bring those three guys back, you're sitting, again, this is a rough estimate with a wide range of possibilities, but you're sitting around 180 to 190 if you bring those guys back and you're sitting around a luxury tax uh, pillow of around 20-ish million dollars. It's not that big of a pillow. The reality is we're probably not going to bring all three of those guys back. And the reality is we're probably going to trade at least one of those guys. And if I had a bet, 
I don't know what type of return you're going to get, but probably would be Chris Bryant. Baez has that thumb injury. Chris Bryant did have that hamstring injury he experienced in the third game of the Philly series. Baez did have that sprained thumb. We'll see what happens in the next few days here with that, but he's had thumb injuries throughout the season. But it seems as if given the performances and what you can might get in the, on the market, Chris Bryant seems to be the, the logical trade candidate. Rizzo. On the other hand, striking out a little bit more often, but the price tag for Rizzo, given some of their early season struggles and injuries, may not be that six-figure contract um, that we expect. When I say six figures, I mean like 100 plus million. When, it, when we start talking about all these zeros, my brain shuts down. But we're talking about 100 plus million for Rizzo. Maybe, maybe it might not be that much. Maybe at the end of the day, it might be around 70, 80 million that, that, that Rizzo might have turned down and what presumably was offered before spring training of this year. So Rizzo might be a guy to stay just to keep him happy, just to resume some of those negotiations perhaps in August and September when the uh, pressure and the, 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 the pressure to succeed in a playoff contentious season is, is off the table at that point. Who knows, right? There's so many variables that it's hard to reliably project what's going to happen. But from my point of view, I want immediate value back. I think the Cubs have room to spend, whether that's in their free agent market or through extending Chris Bryant or trading some guys uh, at the here at the trade deadline to compete in 2022 and beyond. Especially if you're assuming that you may have around $100 million to spend this offseason. And the pitching market, it's it's kind of strong. It's not supplemented by those ace figures at the top of the rotation, but you have guys like Kevin Gossman and Marcus Stroman and Noah Syndergaard and really a huge list of guys that could fill into those two and three spots, but they might need an ace. And Kyle Hendricks, super solid player, and in my mind is kind of that ace figure, but... Uh, in this day and age, aces do have uh, insane strikeout numbers. And from a projectable standpoint, despite Kyle Hendricks breaking all those projections, which he's done so on a year-to-year basis, uh, he is getting a little bit older. And when you start projecting the future, at what point do you consider the variance in his in his projection? Um, I love Kyle. I don't want this, even me saying this sounds absolutely idiotic. I I think he's breaking projections. I think he's breaking those traditional aging curves. And if we're up to me, you know, you keep you keep Kyle, you you rely on him as your top tier pitcher. But this is operating under the assumption that Jed Orier is going to try to compete for 2022. And he said today, to paraphrase, that by no definition will there be a rebuild at all. That that that's what he said. Now definitions are varied does that mean there won't be a one to two year reload does that mean there won't be a one to two year in most people's definitions rebuild is a reload the same as a rebuild like what what are we talking about here right and i don't i don't think any of us have a confident idea two weeks ago we were talking about this team in a playoff context uh, in first place i was losing my mind over eric sogard and now every day i wake up hoping that the cubs don't trade you know, Chris Bryant, even though it's probably going to happen. And uh, I might have to grow to the idea that trading Chris Bryant is indeed the best 
the best for the club's future, which is which is difficult to, to accept at this point. But that's that that's our reality. So to the point of do you want immediate value or long-term value? I want immediate value. Some guys on the market right now, again, just dozens of potential candidates. But you look around and you know, maybe someone like uh, Cattell Marte for the Diamondbacks, who's extended for multiple years, and he's a 27-year-old who's had injury injuries in the past few years. But in 2019, he had 30-plus home runs. He can play second-base shortstop, uh, predominantly in the outfield for the Diamondbacks. We've heard this name so much recently, but like Whit Merrifield, maybe? He's extended through um, two, two years. I don't, I don't know. He's 32 years old. If the Cubs want to compete for 2022 and beyond, maybe Whit Merrifield is an option. You can see him supplementing second base, moving Nico to shortstop. You have an insane contact-oriented middle of the infield if you decide to do that. And these deals are not going to be like, you know, a one-for-one deal or a two-team deal. I, I see if the Cubs want to get immediate value back in terms of like major league players it's going to have to come in a three-team deal it's just i that's just my that's just my opinion um i don't see them being able to trade like prospects or like you know current major leaguers to teams who want to give up major league ready talent i i would i would imagine teams who want to give up current major leaguers they would want to get prospects back in return so that means in some way they would need those prospects, which means in some way, if the Cubs want to get back that immediate value, a third team has to be involved. It's, it's definitely possible. It's happened in years past, and the Cubs have been part of those deals in years past. And with this COVID post-era in baseball, it's, it's truly hard to project what that, what that might be. There was a recent article about uh, two weeks ago by Ken Rosenthal out of The Athletic where he was dis- uh, describing what the market could be like. And it's really difficult to pre- to predict this trade market. I know I've said this a few times, but Ken Rosenthal was saying that it's so difficult for front offices to project minor leaguers because at the lower levels, most did not play in 2020. You're at those alternative sites, as were Braylon Marquez and a plethora of Cubs prospects. They didn't have the playing time. And it's hard to actually project and be comfortable giving up current major leaguers for minor leaguers and prospects that you have a limited data set for. And that's that's understandable. And also, there's another concern. And the concern is that uh, we don't know what the budgets are for some of these teams. The majority of these teams have opened up their gates to full capacity, but they did lose gate revenue earlier on. They had no gate revenue for 2020. And given some of these struggles for a lot of these teams, they're going to have difficulties drawing fans. And even the Cubs, the Cubs might have difficulty drawing fans if uh, they continue to get shut out on every other day basis and throw out players like a trash Eric Sogard who can't feel the ground ball at third base or second base and hits backhanded Rafael Nadal pop-ups to third base and shortstop basically every other at bat. <sighs> you know, they better just get rid of that guy. It's just, I really, I, I can't take it anymore. Um, 
especially now, given that like we got to be looking towards the future. Anyway, so that's all to say is that the budget shakes things up. I, it, it, I, I don't, I don't know what that means for baseball. And then you factor in that many pitchers whom you acquired data on were confounded by sticky substances and spider attack. And to what degree did that influence their performances is going to be intensively analyzed. And there's been a lot of analysis by a lot of folks on Twitter. One guy I highly recommend, he's he's among the best, is Max Bay. He's a close friend of mine, and he's been showing the degree to which spider attack has influenced um, you know, spin rates and pitch value. And it's 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 a it's a huge difference. So can teams go out there and be comfortable giving up prospects for pitchers and trying to project whether or not those values and performances continue on this year without that sticky substance? And specifically for the Cubs, does that mean anything? The spin rates for the Cubs without with the spider attack and the crazy umpire enforcement rule, they haven't been much different. The only pitcher that suffered after that rule was implemented was Tommy Nance. And it's not to say that Tommy Nance was 100% using sticky stuff. And if he is, you know what? Like, that's a, a, a league-wide issue they, they probably should have addressed before the year started and maybe even delayed it to the offseason. But... Whatever, Tommy Nass's spin rate, at one point it peaked at 3,200 RPMs, and now it's around 2,600 RPMs, and that curveball is a huge drop. That's like an astronomical drop that should signal like everyone should be not con- I don't know, concerned is the right word, but it should catch your eye that some th- something's not right. And so you look at Tommy Nass as the example, and you ask the question, who else is an example across the league? For the Cubs, that's basically it. Spin rate across the board for the other pitchers have not been an issue. Uh, you know, Chafin's been fine. Tapera pre-injury was fine. I don't think that's an issue, but there still might be some equations involved where they may not be comfortable with acquiring guys outside of their organization without the knowledge of what they were using. Um, so we'll we'll see what happens. It's a it's a crazy environment, man. Like this. This 21 season, I thought 2020 would be insane and it was insane, but this 21 season, 2021 season is just so hard to get a feel for. And then, you, and then you have to consider that the CBA for 2022 and those negotiations, we have no idea where they're at. There might be a strike next year. And so are teams factoring that in when they're trying to trade for long-term value that there is a even 5% chance of not being able to play in 2022 for some time because the union and the league cannot get together on the same page? Maybe, right? I'm not saying that's a high probability scenario, but it is a possible scenario. And I do think it's worth questioning of what's going to happen. Uh, And that's really the theme of this, right? It's not confidently saying one direction is going to happen it's throwing out all the possibilities that there are so many different scenarios and permutations that could affect the cubs that it's again it's it's really difficult to talk about um my my goal and intention is always to compete immediately 
2023. So if there was a way for the Cubs to do that, given their financial freedom and assuming some of their young guys like Brennan Davis and Trey Strump progress and Nelson Velasquez and Brilliant Marquez comes back from his shoulder injury and Cole Roederer uh, starts progressing and Miguel uh, Amaya's forearm strain is really not that significant that they can come back, look good in the late June month and August, giving you an idea of what to expect in 2022. That has a huge effect on projecting next season and what the Cubs might do. So there is just, there's just, we're, we're early, man. And uh, that's exciting in, in, in a weird way. And there was a, you know, there's a, there's, there's a question posed by a longtime listener, Brent Stewart, of this pod. It's like, hey, do you feel excited about this potential rebuild or reload? And, I'm a I'm a weirdo. I I like watching young guys and players and pitchers and hitters get an opportunity to cement themselves as guys. And from my point of view, it pains me to see this Cubs team perform like this. And it is going to be a morning process for me. It's, it's it's difficult talking about this team right now. But there will come a time where I get excited about what to expect in the future and I will get excited about projecting when and what Brennan Davis's strikeout rate will be in Major League Baseball and what the Cubs might do in free agency given that they're going to have around 80 to 100 million in luxury tax payroll and you're going to get other opportunities for young guys like Justin Steele and Keegan Thompson and you know you're going to get a lot of guys from Iowa getting chances later on in a weird, morbid, curious way, I like seeing that. I wanted David Bodie to succeed. I want Patrick Wisdom to succeed because I like their stories. I like how they kind of came out of nowhere and flipped the scripts against the scattering reports and had success. I want to see those guys succeed. And I will be watching games with multiple purposes, but one purpose will be to see if those guys can succeed. And to see the adjustments they make in the in in the process, that's the beauty about baseball. It's not just about trying to go out there and from from at least my perspective, winning a World Series. I, I mean, if they don't win the World Series, I'm like depressed every single year. But um, it's always with the goal of winning a World Series in the immediacy, and in doing so, it shifts my focus to those guys who could be contributing. So yeah, there is a degree of excitement that's involved. And I do want to see what the Cubs have in mind with that mindset with Nico Horner. Does he play second base? Does he get more chances at shortstop? Uh, does he get chances in center field? He's had some chances in center field in spring training. There's been talks about it. He's been he's played a you know a sparse amount of innings in the outfield. What does his role look like? And what does that mean for Javi Baez in the future? And Javi Baez is, I mean, historically, I mean, I have to say it, historically terrible walk and strikeout rate. There's been few players in major league history with walk rates and strikeout rates like Javi Baez. And before that thumb sprain, Against the Phillies, he did look a little better in a few games, and he was hitting 116-mile-per-hour line drives off the Wrigley Ivy, and he's hitting home runs, and I get that. But at, 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 in many at-bats, you know, anecdotally, when you watch fastballs go through the zone, 
strike three. It's, it appears as if he's being fooled or he's guessing. That's not where you want to be. When you want to give someone, you know, maybe a hundred plus million dollars to be your shortstop, does it make more sense then to explore other possibilities, explore Corey Seager, Carlos Correa, Trevor Story, shortstop options in their market in combination with Javi Baez's market in this offseason. And if they opt not to chase after those shortstop free agents, before that happens, do they want to see what they have in Nico at shortstop? I imagine they do. And I imagine we will get that possibility and that opportunity to see Nico at shortstop at, at some point. I think he has the ability to do it. His arm is underrated. His footwork is exceptional. He's extremely athletic, extremely fast, amazing attitude. He's a guy. He's he's probably my my favorite positional player to watch just because the foundations are so strong. He has such a cool-looking A2000 baseball glove with that contrasted Cubs red Wilson logo, and he's got that uh, high sock look going. Like he's, he's a shortstop, dude. He's a middle infielder if I've ever seen one in my entire life. Where's number two? Um, yeah, he just looks he just looks good out there, man. And he's got that contact rate of around potentially 15 to 18 percent. Uh, he has the ability to lay off pitches, power potential, of course, batting average potential, plus defense. Uh, weighted on base average with plus defense of around 330 is going to equate to around two to three war. That's that's good, and that's what you want. And I think he can do that at shortstop, and whether he gets the chance to do that, we'll see. If he does, that's going to form what the Cubs do in the offseason, whether or not they chase that for the shortstop market, or perhaps if they want to compete in 2022, invest heavily in that starting pitching market. And we'll see what happens in that reliever market, too, if they trade Chafin and Kimbrell. Um, so, so, so many unknowns. All right. And then one other question we got from Greg Huss, uh, you need to listen to his podcast guys, him and him and Jimmy, Jimmy do a great job talking about prospects in the Cubs system. Whenever I listen to their episodes, I learn more and more about the system. Uh, it's just phenomenal stuff. So he asked a question, what do I want to see for the Cubs draft? Do I want to see them target? You know, high school bats, high school arms, college bats. Like, what what are we looking at here? And they dive deep into player specifics, but I'm going to give a generality. I want to compete as soon as possible. Does that mean go for a high school bat? Go for a college bat? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't care. College bats seem in history to have the highest advanced development, and we see that even with Ian Happ, Kyle Schwarber. Chris Bryant, all making their debuts within one to two years. I want to win now with this with this budget, with this uh, payroll flexibility, with the talent coming through the system. Win now. Win in 2022. So whatever that ends up being, go get that guy in the draft. Go get that college bat if you think he's going to develop quickly through the cup system. Okay, then last topic before we review this upcoming series. One question was, what could be the value 
for a Zach Davies or a Jacob Marisnik or a Jock Peterson. Not much. Uh, hate to disappoint, but not much. And we can look no further than what the Cubs gave up for Nick Castellanos a few years ago in a pre-COVID environment without budget restrictions and gate restrictions. The Cubs gave up no one, man, for, for Nick Castellanos. Um, I mean, they gave up some guys, but no one of immediate value. And when you look around at the league and try to figure out what someone like a Jock Peterson could get back in return, you know, I think maybe that Nick Castellanos trade the Cubs uh, did a few years ago might be a template, but even Jock this year, like, he's not exactly blowing away competition. His war is 0.3, his weighted on base average is 309, he's uh, batting 230, he has the same amount of home runs as Patrick Wisdom uh, with 11, in Jock's case, almost 300 plate appearances, historical troubles against left-handed batters, defense that's suspect out in left field, you're not going to get that much value for him. Marisnik has recent hamstring injuries, a history of subpar offense, uh, plus defense to center field. But again, do you get back enough value for the long term for a Jake Marisnik, or do you just let him play him out, get comfortable with the Cubs, perhaps use that time to to lure him back to wanting to sign with the Chicago Cubs? We'll, we'll see what happens. Zach Davies, you know, he's been good. Recently, he's using that sinker up and in, uh, starting to shift away from that changeup to those sinkers. Maybe he can get back value at the trade deadline, but, um, you know, he's been a mid-tier starter this year, slightly above league average. What that gets in the trade market in this type of environment, I would have guessed not much. If we're worried about what we can get from a Javi Baez or a Chris Bryant, at this point in their in their seasons, then you have to apply the same logic for Zach Davies, who does not get whiffs, who has been a little up and down this year, but overall the FIP is above league average, the ERA is better than league average, and that's coming with a change in sequencing and change up in sinker usage. Um, maybe that is value that teams are willing to part with to get but I'm not I, I truly don't know yet let's see what happens in the next few weeks discussing these trade rumors on July 9th is going to be a disservice well we're gonna see the market develop in you know a week from now and we've seen how fast the Cubs have Falling off the cliff with that 11-game losing streak and how teams' plans shift. And just like the Cubs' plans shifted to that seller mode, perhaps if the Padres or the Giants or the Dodgers, if they go on a win streak here, that might change and inform what those front offices want to do. But okay, so that's that. Let's go ahead and preview the upcoming series for the Cubs. Um, Here's the thing. When we preview this series, um, you know, we're going to be recapping these series, whether or not the Cubs are good for the rest of the season, at literally every single series. So the tone might shift in terms of what we're looking for. And um, that's, that's, that's natural. That's to be expected. So in this case, when the Cubs play the Cardinals this weekend, that should be a big series. And the Cubs are 43-45. and 45. So are the Cardinals. 
why you think it's a big series. It's not. Um, both teams are out of it, man. And that's the reality of the situation. So we have to look forward to what lineups Ross puts out, whether Jake Arrieta gets his, uh, a turn skipped in the rotation after he comes back from the IL. He was placed on the 10-day IL with a hamstring injury. I don't know if that's real or not, but he's on the IL. When he does come back, we'll have to see what the Cubs do with him. But even in his absence, what do the Cubs do with him? When will we see Justin Steele? When will we see Keegan Thompson in the rotation? Does Brad Wick get more chances? Uh, who's going to replace a Craig Kimbrell if he is traded almost immediately? These are the, the, are the topics we'll be discussing. So on Friday... We have a 1.20 p.m. start time. We have Kyle Hendricks on the mound, a 10-4 record, a 3.83 ERA. We have Wade LeBlanc on the mound for the Cardinals, a 0-1 record, a 4.24 ERA. And then on Saturday, the Cubs are back out there. Uh, another, uh, this case, going to be a late afternoon, early evening start time of 6.15 p.m. Central. We have Zach Davies on the mound with a 5-5 five and five record, a 4.28 ERA. We have Kwon Yun Kim for the Cardinals, a 3-5 and five record, a pretty good 3.39 ERA. And then to finish off this three-game set at beautiful Wrigley, we have... Trevor Williams on the mound at a 1.20 p.m. start time that Sunday with a 3-2 record, a 5.51 year rate. And Adam Wainwright on the mound for the Cardinals, who's having a pretty good year, a 7-5 record, a 3.58 ERA. What are we looking for? We're looking for lineup decisions. We're looking for playing time uh, allocation. We're looking for Patrick Wisdom, whether or not those fastball changes pitchers have made will be sustainable whether or not he'll get more fastballs or fewer fastballs which has been the case in the past few weeks we're going to be monitoring chris bryant's hamstring injury we're going to be monitoring monitoring javi Baez's injury let's see what happens in kimbrell's usage whether or not they want to protect him for the trade deadline let's see what happens with Trevor Williams trying to get his grounds and his bearings straightened out, he does have a possibility of returning for 2022. So there might be more urgency and value on keeping him in the rotation longer than, let's say, like a Jake Arrieta. And that's it, man. We're going to be monitoring this team for the rest of the season. Regardless, if they go on a hot streak or a cold streak, you can bet on that. And this is just the beginning, right? Everything I talked about today, we're very generalizable and borderline ambiguous, but that's just a byproduct of where we are in the season. Uh, bear with us. We will continue to cover this. Corey will be back for the next episode, and I do appreciate you guys listening to me blabber on for an hour about the sadness that I do have with the Chicago Cubs team. Um, I almost cursed a little bit there, and I almost shed a tear earlier on there, but I, I, I had self-control. Um, it sucks, guys. Like, I, I truly feel bad for for you guys. I feel bad for myself, and I feel bad for Dami Adavi, and I feel bad for Eric Sogard's teammates who had to play with him. Um, damn, this sucks. But it is exciting to see other guys get opportunities, and I do think that, you know, when Corey and I talk about all these 
future players like like we're 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 going to be diving deep into this and to some degree i am excited about this um i i, I really am i i cannot wait to see keegan thompson get that pitching that starting pitching chance we're going to be diving really deep into that and diving deep into nico horner's adjustments throughout the season like this this is truly exciting so you can bet on us talking about that throughout the season and you know looking forward throughout the off season. Like we're we're here. Tune in. We're not going anywhere. And we're gonna be covering this team, whether they're competing for a division or looking forward to twenty twenty two. So with that said, we'll see you guys this weekend after the Cubs finish a three game set against the Cardinals. And as Corey always says, to finish off each episode, go Cubs.